fighting for perfection uh, several decades away uh, is not going to solve the existential crisis that, uh, that exists around, around climate change. So, um, and aviation is a little sort of microcosm of that. Um, now, ultimately, one day, uh, I'm, I'm pretty confident that you'll be able to fly from uh, here, to, uh, here to San Francisco and uh, you'll be able to do that on an aircraft with something like a gas turbine burning, uh, burning hydrogen. But there's no way that, uh, that we're going to be doing that in the next 15 years. Uh, not, not, certainly not on a, on a sort of commercially sensible basis. That's the chief executive of Rolls-Royce, Warren East, one of the speakers at the Reuters Impact two-day session. Welcome to this latest episode of Climate Conversations. I am your host, Robert McLean. Climate Conversations is assembled here in Shepparton, in northern Victoria, Australia, on the lands of the Yorta Yorta people. Yes, the stolen lands of the Yorta Yorta people, and I pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Let's listen now to what Warrenies had to say at the two-day Reuters Impact event. Uh, shifting from biodiversity to decarbonisation uh, in industry, we have, welcoming to the stage, we have Warren East, the CEO of Rolls-Royce. Uh, he's going to be interviewed by my colleague, uh, Paul Sandal, and they will talk about decarbonisation strategies. Welcome, gentlemen. Good morning, everybody. Uh, this is Warren East, Chief Executive of Rolls-Royce, which um, traces its history back to the end of the 19th century, but um, today is well known for its business, biggest businesses in civil aviation. Uh, they make the engines that power wide-body jets around the world, long-haul flights, and also has a substantial business in marine, in power systems, and developing business in nuclear as well historically a business in nuclear and that um, also um, has new initiatives and so on, small modular reactor, reactors. And um, Warren has been at the company since 2015 and he will leave, retire at the end of this year and it's obviously been a difficult time for the global aerospace industry during that time but at the same time Warren has really pushed the agenda towards net zero and Rolls-Royce's role in achieving that for the civil aviation sector and other sectors. So, Thank you, Paul. So would you like to just um, explain to me how you've made that journey and how the road to net zero has become core to what the company does and its future? Yeah. Um, let me start by saying, so when I uh, joined Rolls-Royce, um, I was actually quite surprised uh, at how little the sector appeared to be embracing the concept of uh, decarbonisation. Um, if I looked at the Rolls-Royce revenue uh, in 2015, then um, about 96% of that revenue was associated with setting fire to fossil fuels. And uh, one of our large um, engines on, uh, on a wide-body aircraft has a life cycle of um, 
at, at least 20 years when it sits on an aeroplane. But it, you know, the whole product life cycle is probably twice that because uh, you spend 20 years selling a bunch of engines and aeroplanes and then the last one uh, is still going to be in, in use for probably another 20 years or so. So I then started thinking, hang on a minute, in 2050, my kids or, or grandchildren are not gonna wanna get on an aeroplane uh, that is uh, trashing the planet. And hang on a minute, that's only one product life cycle away. Uh, so we better do something quite fast. And, uh, and that was really the genesis of, of why we have, uh, ha have moved quite firmly in the direction of, uh, of decarbonisation for, uh, for our products and services. And I've been very encouraged seeing year by year with the sort of international air shows and things how the, uh, the aviation sector, commercial aviation in particular, uh, has, has shifted uh, in, that, um, in that direction. It, it's gone from pretty silent to um, I think the aviation sector um, was pretty united at COP26 last year and, uh, and very heavily focused on this agenda. Yes. And the sector, there's not one single answer at the moment um, to decarbonising aviation, but there are a number of initiatives and num some technologies are gaining traction already, and one of them is sustainable aviation fuel, which is SAP. So how does that, how have you incorporated that into your products and what are the challenges there to take up mm. and to use? So um, just, just before I answer that, uh, th there's, there's no one technology silver bullet for any of these difficult to abate sectors. Uh, and indeed, you know, if you think about the energy ecosystem in, in, in slightly broader terms, and I'm just gonna concentrate from a Rolls-Royce perspective in a moment on, on things like uh, transport and, and, and aviation as, as part of that. Um, but you know, the wider uh, in, environment, you know, there is no one silver bullet. People talk about hydrogen, people talk about LNG, people uh, talk about um, nuclear, renewables, wind, solar. Uh, you know, actually, it's gonna take everything. Um, and we have to understand the concept of, um, of urgency and we have to understand the concept of uh, transition technologies because you know, what, what you want to get to isn't necessarily feasible in the short run, uh, but waiting for perfection uh, several decades away uh, is not going to solve the existential crisis that, uh, that exists around, around climate change. So, um, and aviation is a little sort of microcosm of that. Um, now, ultimately one day, uh, I'm, I'm pretty confident that you'll be able to fly from uh, here, to, uh, here to San Francisco and uh, you'll be able to do that on an aircraft with something like a gas turbine burning, uh, burning hydrogen. But there's no way that, uh, that we're going to be doing that in the next 15 years. Uh, not, not, certainly not on a, on a sort of commercially sensible basis. Uh, so we need a transition technology. And uh, transition technology is, back to your question, um, synthetic aviation fuel uh, today, sustainable aviation fuel, where, uh, where the carbon comes from something like waste cooking oil or, or a bio source. 
The immediate challenge that the sector has with that is that um, the, the sheer quantity of sustainable aviation fuel um, produced is, uh, in, in the world is something less than 1% of, of the, the world's aviation fuel today. So the other 99 point something percent has to come from fossil-based uh, hydrocarbons. Now, uh, the sector wants to move to 100% uh, sustainable aviation fuel by, uh, by 2050. And that's gonna take, um, it'll be like most technology transitions, a slow start and then an exponential rise um, as, uh, 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 as capacity comes on and, and, and the ecosystem starts to work. Uh, so the first challenge is supply and the second challenge is there just isn't enough cooking oil and biosources. Uh, not, not to make that difference from 1% up to, up to 100%. And so we need to source the carbon from uh, other means like, like uh, di direct carbon capture uh, from the atmosphere. Um, and the other in vital ingredient is, is hydrogen. And today, uh, we're, we're going to test uh, one of our engines with, uh, with hydrogen in a matter of a few weeks, certainly before the end of this year. Um, one of the biggest challenges we faced was getting hold of the green hydrogen. Uh, and um, we, we've, we've managed that now. We've found it from a small supplier in the, in, uh, the north of Scotland. But um, you know, there's, again, just tiny, tiny quantities of this stuff around today. Well, there's not much point in building or, or building an engine to run on hydrogen or on synthetic aviation fuel if, if the hydrogen is not a truly green, zero carbon um, uh, generated hydrogen. So um, those are the types of challenges we have with it right now. The oil companies are investing in, in this themselves, Shell, BP and so on, have projects but the amounts are as you say absolutely tidy and does it need significant outside investment and where will that investment come from in the short term to increase production of sustainable aviation fuels and should it be directed at sources such as cooking oil um, as, um, household waste and so on have, have been put forward as possible sources or should it be pure synthetic where how does the transition look over the next few years um, I, I think you know, the answer is we're going to need, need both. We need to work with the technologies we have today, which is, um, which is power from, um, from things like waste cooking oil and, and domestic waste and other waste. But um, at the same time, we need to be investing in the capacity uh, to, to make um, e-fuel uh, and, and, and make it um, totally synthetic. Uh, with carbon capture from the air. Uh, and, you know, there is a huge amount of uh, capex required for that. Mm -hmm. And it isn't, um, it isn't something that uh, the, the oil companies, you know, they have shareholders, they have, uh, they have a business to run. Um, so it needs to make economic sense. And, uh, and, and you know, I think there's going to be a coming together of, uh, of the cost of synthetic fuel and fossil fuels as some of the easier to abate sectors um, shift from fossil fuels. You'll have um, basically less demand uh, for those fossil fuels and the, and the prices will rise. And then the cost of creating aviation fuel from 
a barrel of crude oil um, will will have to be amortized across you know a, a, a just itself um, yes. ra rather than benefiting from uh, from the, all the other um, fuels which are produced from the barrel of crude oil so that will increase the price of the fossil fuels and at the same time scale will bring down the cost of uh, of sustainability uh, sustainable fuels uh, and there may need to be a little bit of policy intervention on the way uh, to help out with the economics and are there any signs that intervention is coming from governments or regulators around the world and does it need to be a global basis because it's such a global industry it, it does need to be global it does need to be joined up you know different companies right across the uh, right across the ecosystem and right around the world and governments need to be joined up around the world and recently uh, the, we had um, one of the regular um, intergovernmental uh, aviation um, meetings uh, ICAO and, and, and these international bodies are uh, are basically supporting and we are getting governments around the world signed up to uh, supporting things like um, SAF mandates and uh, thinking about the sort of economic policy interventions they have to make to uh, turn it into reality. And how quickly does that need to happen? Well uh, probably <laughs> probably faster than it's happening is uh, is, is the answer. Um, you know, this this needs to happen tomorrow. If you um, think about uh, reaching true decarbonisation by by 2050, that means a huge amount has to happen in this decade, and a decade is not a very long time in uh, in, in in government um, in government speak. So uh, I, I think I think people need to get on with it. Right, and in terms of um you're also putting money into other technologies and hydrogen, as you say, to actually power, power the aircraft. That needs a whole infrastructure change globally around airports and supply and so mm. on. Also electricity, um, electric powered engines, which could be used for kind of smaller um, aircraft. Is that a viable solution for long haul by 2050, any of those yeah. two technologies? So, um, so we don't really think that uh, pure electric aircraft is a viable solution for long distance um, large, large aircraft, but it's a very viable solution for small aircraft, short distances, 10 passengers, 250 to 500 miles, uh, maybe growing over the next couple of decades to um, sort of few tens of passengers, uh, a thousand nautical miles or so. Uh, and why does it make sense to do that? Well, it makes sense to do it because um, the, the energy doesn't have to be transitioned into other forms of storage. You lose a lot of energy when you take some green electrons and you turn them into hydrogen. You lose even more when you take the green electrons, turn them into hydrogen, use some more green electrons, capture carbon, use some more green electrons to push the two together and make sustainable aviation fuel. So obviously it makes sense to use pure electric where you can, but you can't do that for the larger aircraft. Hydrogen, you use a lot less energy than if it's uh, sustainable aviation fuel, um, but that is probably going to take two decades or more, um, perhaps uh, perhaps as much as, as as 25 years before that sort of that that aircraft going uh, uh, across from London to San Francisco. Um, there will have been a new aircraft that was delivered the day before that the operator wants to uh, operate for another 20 years after that. So we can see 
decades of this transition uh, phase with uh, sustainable aviation fuel. And to make synthetic avi aviation fuel, you obviously need a lot of powers, as you say, highly energy inefficient to produce that. So you have the small modular reactor project. Yes. Which you're looking for, um, I think that's going to get, um, be, um, where, where is that in the process? So, We've got government backing. But so we, we've been, we've been um, in, engaged in nuclear for the last six decades uh, in a defence application in the UK in submarines. And, um, you know, we think that uh, if you need vast quantities of zero carbon electricity uh, and zero carbon heat to power um, both, both the grid, but also industrial processes like, like SAF plants and other chemical plants, uh, then you know, this is a good uh, zero carbon way of doing it. Uh, we have a design that's going through the, uh, the license approval uh, at the moment and um, you know, subject to orders, we hope to have, uh, have one of those contributing to the grid um, by the end of this decade. In fact, for, for new nuclear in the UK, um, our small modular reactor is the fastest way of putting uh, electrons into the grid. That was backed by Johnson, I believe. Um, is, is the new government fully behind that project, as far as you know? New government's quite busy at the moment. Um, uh, but but um, you know, my, my read is that, uh, that they're very keen on it, that they do understand that uh, the UK needs to worry about the energy transition. Importantly, in the shorter term, perhaps the UK needs to worry about energy security. Uh, and again, you know, having this UK-based technology um, available uh, in the UK is a good answer for UK uh, energy security. And does it depend on UK back in that project, or could you get other governments? Well, we actually have a very uh, extensive pipeline of, uh, of, of export opportunities as well. Um, but obviously, as a UK-based company, we're very keen to contribute to the D directly to the UK, but you know, even with exports, that'll still be an economic contribution um, to the UK economy. Right, good, good. We've got a couple of questions coming in. Um, so, we just discussed this how big a contribution could nuclear have to green hydrogen? what would be needed to incentivize that that's what you just okay so so we have in in some parts of our business we have uh, we have hydrogen electrolyzers where um where we have that as part of a microgrid solution so if somebody has wind or solar and they want to store the excess energy that's generated on a windy or sunny day so it can be used uh, used later then we store that energy as hydrogen and it is green hydrogen because it's been created by wind or solar to make vast quantities of green hydrogen, necessary for simply vast quantities of energy as hydrogen or vast quantities uh, required for something like e-fuels, then, um, then uh, absolutely a small modular reactor off-grid mm -hmm. directly into that, that, that plant is, uh, is the way to do it. Another question is, um, when do you think the public tipping point will come when the consumer will not fly on traditional fossil fuel aircraft? I mean, I think the COVID-19 pandemic changed people's thinking about aviation in some ways, but then after, after mm. the end of it, it's come straight back, hasn't it? Demand is very strong. Yeah, uh, d d demand is strong, and you can see that in, in ticket prices today. I think I think mentality has changed in the business world and, uh, and there's less flying around because actually we've discovered that video conferences can happen. 
But for transporting cargo and you know going into your local Sainsbury's and um, you know finding products that have come halfway around the world, uh, that that demand is is there. It it never stopped. And similarly uh, for for sort of leisure travel and, and, and personal travel and that sort of thing, we're, we're seeing a huge amount of demand at the moment. I think it's, it, it's bizarre to think that humans are going to stop being dependent on flying for, for goods traveling around the world, dependent on, on flying for some of their, their leisure time. That, that's bizarre. I think it's up to industry to find a way of enabling that to happen uh, without us trashing the planet. And, we have got a route uh, for that to happen. And so I'm not sure there's going to be some magic tipping point because people don't tend to go backwards. We learned about flying in the 20th century. It's now the 21st century and we're not going to go back. And, and it's become cheaper and cheaper and more available to more people around the world. Will that have to change? Will ticket prices go up? I mean, undoubtedly what? fuel is part of the cost and um, I think people will be prepared to pay uh, something additional uh, in order to know that, uh, that they're doing it in a way that doesn't damage the environment. Right, right. And I just want to ask you, obviously, it's been a very, there's been a lot of political change in Britain, there's huge impacts on the currency in the, just in the last few weeks, and you're looking at a long-term um, long-term horizon for lots of these initiatives. But in terms of the short term, what's it like managing a major UK company through this constant mm. political and economic turmoil? Well, you know, all businesses like stability. And I'd, uh, I'd love to have a, a stable world in which to operate, but um, you know, that's never the case. Uh, and so, you know, I think that businesses, we just have to, um, we have to deal with that volatility. That, that's why we get paid. And do, would you like a constant kind of um, industrial strategy from Britain? From the government? Well, that too. Um, you know, it would be fantastic if there was a nice framework and you could just sort of slot into it. And, um, but the reality is that, you know, things do change. Uh, and particularly in the world of technology, there are new technologies available. I've just been talking about uh, synthetic aviation fuels, that's where the industry uh, is, is focused today. And I'm busy sat here on a platform saying that electric planes will never work for more than a, a few tens of people up to a thousand nautical miles. Well, maybe there'll be some breakthrough in, uh, in battery chemistry in 10 or 15 years time. And similarly, you know, government policies and, and, and the policy environment changes with, uh, with, with something like that and, um, you know, up to industry to deal with it. Right, good. That's a positive note to end. So um, we've run out of time. So if, uh, um, if you could thank um, Warren East. That would be yeah, well. thank, thank you. Everyone. Thank you, Warren. That's a great worldview on aviation. That wraps up this episode of Climate Conversations. Thanks so much for your company. And until we talk again, please take care, stay safe, and please be kind. For everyone you meet is fighting a great battle. And please, if you enjoyed this episode, feel free to share it with your friends. <laughs>